Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, Your law is a lamp unto our feet. You are gracious to command us so that we could see the path we are to walk in. May the reality of Your mercy and grace of Your precious commands be seen by all who are here today. In Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, the title of my sermon is Why the Law Then? Answer, Israel, the lesson book for the nations. We say that again, differently, unfold it a little bit more. Why did God, in redemptive history, and historical timelines happening, why did He give the law of Moses to Israel without, as a whole, giving them the infilling, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, which produces faith, so that they could obey the law? Answer... Part of the answer is to let Israel for that thousand year period be a lesson book of how not to respond to God. So that when the Gospel goes out, we can be warned. That's my sermon. First, before I ask that question again and unfold it more expositionally, I want to take what we have talked about the last few weeks again about the law and boil it down again so we see it clearly and then I'm going to ask the question again. But to boil it down to this statement, the law of Moses, love the Lord your God with all your heart strength, have no other gods before me, have no images of me, don't murder, don't steal, don't kill, and all the other laws of God. In the thought structure of the law, God commanding obedience, there is nothing about that thought structure that is opposed to the Gospel. It's not in contrast with the Gospel of Jesus. In other words, the law of Moses. There's nothing wrong with it. The problem was... Sin, not the fact that God commands. And that's why the law only condemned. But to make that statement more clear, do you know that the same thing is true with the Gospel of Jesus Christ? How many human beings in the last 2,000 years have been raised in a Christian culture raised going to church on Sunday. Or today, maybe they have it, but you, they hear the Gospel. You tell it to them in the workplace. They visit a church. They ask you, why do you believe? And you tell them the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And they go away unchanged. They may become religious, or may become unreligious, but they are unchanged and remain condemned. Do you know that happens with the Gospel? Why? Because in that instance, at that time, the Gospel, the Word, on page, here it is, outside of you, let me give it to you, was not accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. Then why did the law not save most of the Israelis? Because the law they heard was not accompanied by the Holy Spirit's work in new birth, or meaning regeneration, so that they could come alive to faith and thus obey it. Galatians 3.21, listen to how Paul phrases the question. Is 
the law, God commanded, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Answer, certainly not. Why? Because if the law of Moses had been given, if that law itself could give to the people life, then righteousness would indeed be based on the law. But as a whole, during the period of the law given unto Christ, predominantly the people were not given regeneration by the Holy Spirit. But, to make that, here's the point. The law that God commands, and we are accountable, and Israel was accountable, means that there was nothing wrong with a thought structure of law in and of itself. Three considerations here about law, God commanding, and, and gospel. First is this. I want to defend Paul. Paul has been accused by many in church history, and he is today by many scholars, as being antinomian. That's a big word. Anti, you hear that right? Against. Nomian from the Greek word namas, law, anti-law. And there have been many groups within Christian history who we describe as antinomian. They think the gospel means that therefore a Christian is not duty-bound to obey God's laws. Like don't murder. Like love the Lord your God with all your heart. Like don't commit adultery. It's called antinomianism. Paul never belittled the Mosaic law, its intended meaning. He never said that was just kind of, yuck, useless. And now we're off to something totally different. He did not speak that way. In Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, Paul said, What shall we say? That the law is sin? Paul said, is that what I'm saying? Is something wrong with the law? No. By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But, here's the problem, Paul says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of sin or covetousness. Paul denied there's anything wrong with the law. He goes on in verse 12 of chapter 7 of Romans, so the law of Moses that you have there in your Bible is what? Holy. And the commandment is holy. And it's righteous. And it's good. Paul's point in Romans chapter 7 is that the power of sin, the sin nature we're all born with, takes God's precious, holy, merciful, gracious law and it twists it. And thus the law, not it doing it, sin through the law stirs up more sin and takes the law and becomes more sinful. In other words, the problem was not in the structure of God commanding and now do and then I will bless you. That's not the problem. The problem was sin. Look or listen to how Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Paul says, It is God who has made us competent to be ministers or preachers, servants of the new covenant. Keyword. Of the new covenant. Not of the letter but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, some people think, Paul is saying here, and I'm saying he is not saying this at all, but I've heard teachers of mine tell me, if Paul is saying, the problem is verbalized rules or commandments. The letter on page, do this. Don't do that. That's been done away with. Because that was a problem. 
that God would tell you what to do is what stirs up sin or legalism. And that is not at all Paul's point. They would go on to say, therefore, wipe your mind from any outside agency called law in the Bible of how you ought to live. Wipe it clean and now go be with the Holy Spirit and follow Him. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul's contrast between spirit and letter, it doesn't consist in... Letter does not mean the nature of the intended meaning of the law of Moses. It's not what he means there. Against the Spirit. There's no contrast between the law and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave it. The contrast is whether the person who receives the law has a heart that loves it, that sees the good in it, and wants to follow the God of the law. That only happens by the Spirit. That's what he means. In other words, the letter means you don't have the work of the Spirit indwelling you to open up your heart miraculously out of its sin nature because now the Spirit of Christ or of God is in you to see the beauty of it and thus you walk in faith, obeying it even imperfectly. That's very different. That's Paul's contrast of walking by the Spirit as opposed to the letter, which means you do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. So you just shun the law or you take it and you do something with it very religiously. To confirm this, listen to how Paul talked in Romans chapter 2, verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. Here's that, those terms again. By the Spirit, not by the letter. Paul is clear here that obeying the law, God's commands, is a heart issue, not merely an external issue. It's a heart issue, and that heart issue is only as a result of the work of the Spirit. In Romans chapter 7, verse 6, Paul said, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by. We're in bondage to it. So that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. See, Paul's point of these terms, letter and spirit, by letter, he does not mean the law of Moses. He does not mean letter to represent an equivalent of God commanding in the Bible. What he means is what you're left with when you are a legalist who does not have the new birth. And thus, you take the law and you twist the law, you misconstrue the law, thinking that by that I could merit something from God, which is the opposite of what the law ever intended. And that is what he means by the letter of the law, apart from the Holy Spirit dwelling in you through regeneration. The letter means the sinful heart's response to the law. As we saw last week, it will either say, phooey, don't tell me how to live, don't tell me not to commit adultery or to steal or to backbite, or it does this other thing. It becomes very religious. I'll keep your law. I'll be a good Pharisee. And it is sinful beyond measure. Because in doing it, they think, here's a place where I'll climb the ladder and prove my worth to God. No. That's the letter of the law. In Romans 8, see, the beginning of Romans 8, in verse 3, Paul made it clear, the law, there's nothing wrong with the law, but what is the problem? It was weakened. How? By the flesh meaning the sinful nature of mankind. It was weakened in that what? When a person 
raised in church or you're raised a Jew. You don't have the work of the Spirit in you bringing new life. Then the law is all messed up in your dealing with it and with God and it is powerless. But there's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is with sin. Paul does never, never puts the law in contrast with the work of the Spirit. Immediately in verse 4, Romans 8, he goes on to say, listen to that. Christ does the work for us, what the law could not do in itself, and thus, quote, that the righteous, in the Christian now, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled Filled in us, not ignored, fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Law being fulfilled with those who are walking by the Holy Spirit. Then Paul goes on to speak in verses 7 and 8 of Romans chapter 8. The mind that is set on the flesh... Here he means not walking by the Spirit. The mind set on the flesh is in its very nature hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul never belittled the intended meaning of the law. But he said in Romans, come back, let's be mature. But he said in Romans 3.31, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. But by faith, which is the work of the Spirit, we establish the law. So Paul, for his word, there is nothing, has never been anything wrong with the thought structure of the law. Paul never belittled it. Point two. The new covenant, what did it do? What's the difference? New means there was an old. When the new covenant came, does it mean that, see how God used to command and there were conditions? Now it's new. There are no conditions and no command. It doesn't mean that at all. The new covenant added only new birth. The new covenant added only regeneration of the heart. When you look in the Old Testament, the only change from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, when the prophets are speaking directly about the New Covenant that I'm going to make, the New Covenant, the only change in those texts is that He adds the infilling or indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit we call new birth or regeneration of the heart. Let me just look at a couple. First, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 33. The prophet Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Here it is. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. This is where we've been for weeks. The covenant of Moses. God gave them a covenant. Gave them a law. Obey. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant. And it's not going to be like that covenant. How so? My covenant that they broke and broke and broke and broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will get rid of law and commandments and only say grace, grace. Doesn't say that in years, does it? Here's the difference. Here's the new covenant. I will put my law 
within them. It won't merely be letters on a page that they have no heart to do because of sin. I will put My law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be My people. Ezekiel the prophet saying the same thing about this new covenant. What's going to come? Chapter 11, verses 19 to 20. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in My statutes and keep My rules and obey them. One more. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. And I, God, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That means softness, pliability. And I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and to be careful to obey My rules. The new covenant that Jesus purchased in His blood means the old covenant came without the power of the Spirit to obey it, to love it with a heart of faith. The new covenant means I've purchased it and will put My Spirit within you, bring forth faith so that you will love My law. And so the third point, really short because it's last week's sermon. That's why the law of Moses was always a law of faith. Never a job description by which people could merit. It was always calling for dependent, childlike faith. And who else do I go to? You're the one who is the essence of true happiness. Command me, because you have my best will at heart. One text, New Testament, Hebrews 4, verse 2. For the gospel came to us Christians just as it came to the Israelites in the wilderness under Moses. The Gospel good news came to them. The problem was, in their hearts, that Gospel was not united by a response of faith in those who heard it. Okay, now to the question. In redemptive history, this is what this series has been about. We're looking at big pictures. What has God been up to? Why is He up to what He's doing? And most every time, we're not asking questions out of the blue that the Bible itself doesn't ask and then answer. But why then did God give the law a thousand years before the Gospel to this one little tiny group Israel. Why did He give them the law, which always demanded faith, but did not predominantly give them the work of the Spirit so that they could obey that law? Why did He give the law to a predominantly unregenerate people? Before I answer that, first, I want to make clear that that statement is purely biblical. Not just Joe's. That God did give the people the law and they could not obey it because God did not regenerate them. Deuteronomy 29.4 Listen to the book of Moses. But to this day, Israel, after 40 years after the parting of the Red Sea and deliverance from Egypt, but to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. I don't know how to, I can't say that more clearly, but just look at it. God is the actor and the one choosing 
not to do this act to Israel in the wilderness as a whole. God didn't give it to you. That's why they were constantly rebellious and God's anger burned. God gave them the law without giving them the new birth as a whole. He always had His remnant. God chose to cause Caleb and Joshua and Moses and who knows how many other thousands of the over a million to be born again and to love this God with a heart of faith. There is always a remnant. In Elijah's day, remember, there were 7,000 people, Elijah, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God always has His little portion within Israel who are regenerated, born again, saved, a heart of faith. Listen to how the Apostle Paul says this now, teaching us in Romans chapter 11, starting with verse 7 through verse 10. Paul says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, righteousness in the law, within Israel, within Israel, watch this, the elect within them obtained it. But the rest were hardened. Now, listen. Okay, Paul, get your head on. Paul, are you really saying what it sounds like? Okay, I used to read these texts when I first became a Christian in the early 1980s, and I knew they could not mean what they sound like. There had to be some secret meaning to them. So how I I'm honestly felt that way. But Paul says, as it is written, but first what he said before that, but the rest, he didn't say, but the rest just had hard hearts. He didn't say that. He put it in the passive voice. These unbelieving Israelites, he doesn't say, look at them. They hardened their heart. No, they would be the subject of the verb harden. He puts it in the passive it was something of an outside agent did it to them. Their hearts were hardened. And then he supports it with Hebrew Scripture. As it is written, Isaiah the prophet says, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And then David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So, back to the original question. Why? Why did God give the law to Israel when the vast majority of them during the desert and for the next thousand years, had no inclination of the heart to take the humble stance that the law demanded, which was a humble heart of trust and faith and delight in the God who commands. Why did God do that? Answer, God did that in His plan of redemptive history. Give the law to a predominantly unregenerate people so that sin would be seen to be as ugly as it really is. In two ways. One, you have the one true God. The Greeks got the wrong gods. The Romans had the wrong gods. The Egyptians had the wrong gods. There's only one God and the one true Creator God, the Sovereign of all, is the God who personally took Israel. And I'm your husband. Obey me. And to show the depth and the ugliness and the spurning of sin towards God of what it is, they had the holy, righteous, true Word from the one true God and said, sin says in them, unregenerate hearts say, no! Wow. But not only that, though it could take, as history unfolded, 
And at the end of the Old Testament prophets, when they last spoke around 430 B.C., those next 400 years, Judaism was being born. And then, let's do it this way then, to become very religious with the law, and it's still an unregenerate heart creates legalism. Thinking that I can show myself worthy to God. And then, that shows sin in its ugliest form. And God wanted that demonstrated and written about. That heart attitude. I have something to offer to God. Jesus confronted it in His ministry and Paul did all over the place and that's why we have it. Because God in His sovereign purposes wanted it demonstrated. That's why Paul says bluntly in Romans chapter 5 verse 20. I'm going to probably say this three times, quote it three times to make sure that that's what he said. Now The law came in. Why, Paul? In order to increase trespasses. It's not a mistranslation. It's a purpose clause in the Greek. Why the law then, Paul? For the purpose of sin increasing. Then in chapter 7 of Romans, verse 13, Paul said, Did that which is good, that's the law, precious, holy, righteous, good law, did that which is good then bring death to me, Paul? By no means. Was it the law's fault? It was sin. Producing death in me through Christianity. Sorry, because that has happened in the last 2,000 years. Same principle happens in religion today. But, I'll go back. But it was sin through what is good that killed me. In order that, why? In order, here's purpose again. Whose purpose is this? The only purpose this could be structurally is ultimately God's hidden sovereign purpose being revealed now. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, it's true. It's not all He says. And that through the commandment of God that I had, I, Paul, had as a Jew and a Pharisee, that through the commandment, sin itself might become sinful beyond measure. Paul's point is that God gave the law to unregenerate people. And Paul himself was one years later unregenerate, studied law, was a scholar in the law of Moses and Judaism. He gave the law so that that law itself would give the sinful, unregenerate heart the foothold it needed to demonstrate how blasphemous it is in producing legalism. Producing the idea that because I fill in the blank, anything, thus God shows grace to me. And that is abhorrent in God's nostrils beyond measure. In Paul's own case, listen to how he speaks from Romans 7. He says, sin, in him, in me, sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment produced in me, All kinds of sin. All kinds of covetousness. And he goes on to say, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. Sin deceived me. Not the commandment. Because of the religion, because of the commandment, sin deceived me and through it killed me. And so in 1 Corinthians 15.56, when Paul makes that statement that may have befuddled you, when he said, the power of sin is God's law. What's he saying? He's saying, God's precious holy law, don't do this. Love me with all your heart. Child of Adam, born in original sin, don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. This is my holy law given to you. He says, that is like gasoline thrown on the little flame of our sinful, unregenerate hearts. 
especially when it goes the religious way, like the Pharisees, like the Judaizers in the first century. In other words, sin-infested, spiritually dead, corrupt us, children of Adam, think themselves in taking God's book to be noble. A little bit better. Look at me. And where it's flowing from is an arrogant idea that I am earning God's smile upon me. And that attitude makes sin reach the top of the mountain and for God to condemn it. And so, that's why Paul, what did he call himself in one of the letters to Timothy? I, Paul, am a chief, the chief of sinners. The same man who wrote to the Philippians, my previous life before I was born again, before the Spirit came within me to dwell, before I saw the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. As to the law, I, Paul, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, boy, you better believe I was religious. It was my life. I was a persecutor of the church. Oh, as to the righteousness found in the law, I, Paul, blameless. Wait, wait, which one is it, Paul? Were you blameless or were you the chief of sinners? That's what he means by the chief of sinners. He didn't mean blameless in God's eyes. He means blameless in His sin-darkened religiosity that thought, look at me. I have something to offer. I have distinctives. I do these things right. And thus I'm special to God as opposed to the Gentile. That's what he meant. Now, this question. Okay, let's just say, I'll buy that for a minute, Joe, and we'll go back and look seriously at Bible. But if that's true, if God gave the predominantly unregenerate Israel the law so that sin would be shown to be sin and also expand itself into the utterly simple, well, why did He want to do that? In order that the history would be written so that Israel would be the lesson book for all the nations of the world. In the book of the law itself, Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 26, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God so that it may be there for a witness against you. And that book of the law, what we call our Old Testament as a whole, but more specifically the five books of Moses, that book of the law has from then up until today been a witness throughout Israel's history. Read the Old Testament as she again and again and again hardened her heart and abandoned God and strayed and worshipped other gods again and again. And the Old Testament itself gives us those stories. And it makes it clear that God's judgment and of wrath that He continued to warn them about and then would bring it about and bring it about stronger and bring it about stronger it continually tells us the reason God's judgment, Israel, when the ten southern tribes basically destroyed and wiped off earth and who knows where they've gone. And then 150 years later in 587 B.C., excuse me, the northern tribes first, and then the southern tribes, Judah, are destroyed. Babylon wipes out Jerusalem. God says in Jeremiah, 
concerning the Babylonian captivity. Chapter 16, verses 10 and 11. And you will, excuse me, and when you tell this people all these words, and they say to you, Jeremiah, they say to you, Why has Yahweh the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Jeremiah, then you shall say to them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord. And they have gone after other gods, and they have served and worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my laws. And then, while the Babylonian battering rams are knocking down the walls of Jerusalem, Jeremiah acknowledges to God, quote, that Israel did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did, not, they did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. The point is that except for the small remnant that, that always, always existed within Israel who loved God, the great majority of Israel throughout their history never welcomed the gracious promises and commandments of God. And consequently, the nation as a whole was severely punished for rejecting the law by not responding with a heart of dependence and faith in the God of the law. But, it's not because Israel's sin was worse than the Greeks. Israel is more sinful than the Greeks by nature. Or the Romans. Or the African tribes. Or the Chinese in the Far East back then. That's not the point. You know, that's not why they were punished more severely than all. The wrath did not come upon Israel only to teach Israel. Yes, that but also always clearly in God's purposes revealed in Scripture was ultimately to also teach every people group of the world when the Gospel would one day go forth. When the nations were to hear about Jesus Christ, this is the reason, this is the one that can show God, the reason why God can show such mercy that He did to Israel back then through Moses. It's Him. It goes not empty-handed, but it goes with a book that is filled with some wonderful illustrations of faith. That's why the book of Hebrews chapter 11 can be read. But it is predominated by warning! Christian people don't ever do what we Christian people have done since the church age. What they did turn Christianity into the same abhorrent, disgusting legalism. Miss the Gospel. Not respond with the heart of faith. And so it goes with the book. Listen to a couple following passages. Again, I think these make it clear in Scripture that are going to support what I just said. God did this so that Israel would be a lesson book for the nations. First, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 24 to 28. Quote, All the nations of the earth will say, it's right there in the book of the law, All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done this to this land, Israel? What caused the heat of this great anger that He had against them? Then the people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, 
the God of their fathers, which He made with them when He brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods, and they worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom He had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it the curses written in this book of the law. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are to this day. Then the prophet Ezekiel says, to Jerusalem, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you and I will execute judgments in the midst, in the sight of all the nations. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you. And in the sight of all who pass by, you shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you. When I, God, execute judgments on you in anger and fury and with furious rebukes. But in using Israel as the lesson book of the nation, no Gentile like me or any other Gentile should ever have an arrogant, smug attitude over against the Jews as if they're better. Jeremiah 25.29 says, For behold, I begin to work disaster, God says, at the city, Jerusalem, that is called by My name, and shall you, the nations, go unpunished? No. You shall not go unpunished, for I am surmounting a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord. But Israel was God's way of demonstrating the essence of sin in His judgment, in His wrath for that period of time for when the Gospel was to go out. And it is those type of passages in Jeremiah and Ezekiel that the Apostle Paul used for his theology of the lesson book of Israel. For instance, when he says in Romans 3.19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, the Jews. So that, not just the Jews, but that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may become accountable to God. So the point in these Old Testament passages and Paul's interpretation of it is that as the Gentiles were to receive the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, to the ends of the earth, every tribe, people, race, nature, nation, culture, etc., the Gospel now goes from the Jews to them. Israel, in its history in a book, will also serve as a warning. Believe. Walk in faith. God's not messing around. Judgment will come. Listen to Paul's sermons. That's how he preached it. In other words, we, the nations, the Gentiles, should ask, why, what, what, why such horrendous disasters should happen to God's people, Israel? And you shall tell them, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord and failed to walk in faith in my promises, in my commands. It is a lesson book, and there are great lessons of faith. David's a great lesson. Moses is a great lesson. Caleb's a great lesson. Jeremiah. we got great lessons of true believing. Yes, those are New Covenant people during the Old Covenant period of time. And there are lessons of 
warning. And that's why the Apostle Paul can write to the Corinthian church now. Now we're past the cross on this side of it, and he can write. And sit yourself down first century as a, as a Corinthian, and now Paul's letter comes, and I, the elder, read it to you. Because you know and love your Bible, which is the Jewish Bible. Which is the, what you call the Old Testament. They don't have a New Testament right now in AD 53. Quote, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers, Israel, were all under the cloud. And they all passed through the sea. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food. You know your Bible. That's what Paul. You guys know your Bible. You know Exodus. We've been reading that, right? In Numbers and Deuteronomy, Leviticus. And they all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. Water came from a rock. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown by God in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us. That we, do you profess Christ? Nod your head. That we might not desire evil as they did. That we would not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell dead in one day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down in a lesson book for our instruction. I added the word lesson. For our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. That's New Testament. And that New Testament passage, if you do not know what is in most of your Bible, called the Old Testament, that New Testament passage makes no sense. And so one final question. In what sense was Israel to be the lesson book for the nations? Galatians says, until Christ. Galatians 3.19, why then the law, Paul says, it was added for the sake of transgressions. Until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. And that seed, he goes on to make clear, was Jesus Christ. I think what Paul means in that text is that there have been enough historical events, judgments of God, and recorded in text of Scripture, and a period of 400 years for Judaism to develop to be where it was in the first century when Christ came. All that had enough time to say, that's enough, we got the book now. And as Paul was going to say, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. Now it's ready. So that when these Jewish believers go out to the world, the Gentiles and the nations, they go with the book of believe in God, look at God's works, look at His acts, look at David, look at the example, and warning, warning, warning. Walk by faith, never by works of merit. Warning, 
And so, the dietary, cultural laws, ceremonial laws that God placed upon Israel in the books of Moses was to ultimately make them a distinct, separate people while He's writing a lesson book with them. That's how I understand that. And thus, when Christ comes, lesson book period is over in that sense. Therefore, the cocooning laws like kosher diet, circumcision, cultural laws, and festivals fall away. Those things that made Israel become and stay a distinct group of people even in the diaspora fall away and are not to be carried on as the gospel is being preached. But the until Christ means God's peculiar work of the emphasis of making Israel a lesson book for the nations. And put yourself in Rome and you hear another letter from Paul and everything you heard the last 50 minutes, Paul says, Gentile? Believer? If some of the branches, the Jews, were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the Jews, the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say to me, Paul, branches... The Jews, as a whole, predominantly, the majority, were broken off so that I, a Gentile, might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. And you stand fast only through faith. And therefore, do not become proud but stand in fear. For if God did not spare the Jews, the natural branches, neither will He spare you, professing Christian Gentile. That is, if you turn away from Him in unbelief. Paul closes with, Note then, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. Kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. That is a huge theological, I know, Sermon. What about application? I'm going to do one. It's going to be simple this morning. But as I do it, what I'm going to do is turn to a New Testament writer and just read it and let him speak to you by the Spirit and to me. As we are preparing our hearts for communion, because we're going to come to the communion table again and know what we're doing is this is representing Jesus Christ's death and His resurrection. He purchased my fulfilling the warning of the text. He purchased my persevering faith. If you're a true believer, you will make it. Because one of the signs of true faith is that as I close reading from Hebrews chapter 3, Believers, listen and take the warning of the lesson book through the New Testament writer to heart. Now, Moses, abundant grace, Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant 
in order to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ, oh hear it, is faithful over God's house as a son. And we, abundant grace, are His house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says in Holy Scripture, the lesson book, quote, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put Me to the test and saw My works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and I said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known My ways as I swore in My wrath. They shall not enter My rest. End quote. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But instead, based upon this lesson, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, in order that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm until the end. As it is written in the lesson book. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Father, graciously apply Your Holy Word to us in these moments of continuing the preparation of our heart to receive the Lord's table together in communion. In Jesus' name.